you know what? I'm midlife. I'm raising a son who I want to be confident and have self-worth and be strong. So I need to set an example of like, you know what? We are who we are. And if it's not good enough for this person or not good enough for this group, that's, that's tough because this is who we are and we're going to be unapologetic about it. Um, and that means I can be very Asian. Um, but that means I can be my own kind of variation of variation um, and still be um, who I am. From UW Tacoma, this is Pod Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm Eric Wilson-Edge. Today on the pod, a conversation with television journalist Michelle Lee and UW Tacoma Associate Professor J. Ron Kim. Lee has been a television journalist for 20 years, but she made news recently for a tweet she shared. The tweet included a recording of a viewer complaining that Lee was, quote, being very Asian during a segment that discussed traditional New Year's Day foods. The response to the tweet was overwhelmingly positive and gathered worldwide media attention, including from Ellen DeGeneres, who had Lee on her show. We'll talk with Lee about what it was like to go viral. We'll also talk with Lee and Kim about their struggles with identity. Both women were adopted by white families and grew up never really knowing where they belong. A note to our listeners, the conversation is difficult at times as both Lee and Kim discuss racist incidents that happened to them, as well as how these experiences impacted their lives. Michelle, Lee, J. Ron, Kim, welcome to each of you to Pod Defiance. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's my favorite podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Michelle, for that, uh, that plug. I appreciate it. Michelle, I want to start with you. You've been a journalist for a long time, but recently you reached um, maybe a, a higher level of notoriety for a tweet you posted. I'm wondering if you can give uh, provide the backstory to folks who maybe aren't familiar with what happened and also maybe talk a little bit about what it was like to go viral. So I've been around for uh, 20 years in news. I hit my 20th year this year. and. Um, you know, we are subjected to a lot of different criticisms and, um, and critiques, you know, unwanted advice, you know, so to speak, you don't like your hair, your makeup, your weight, all those things, you know, so it's just, it's how it is. Um, but one day uh, this year on January 1st, I was doing, um, doing the news and I had just said something like, you know, here's what Americans eat on New Year's day. And I mentioned pork for progress, cornbread coins you know it's all it all ends up being about wealth and and health and so then I just added a line uh that said I had dumpling soup because that's what a lot of Korean people do and it's true I mean I that's a traditional New Year's dish and a lot of my friends were posting about it that day so I just thought I'm gonna throw in something I had um already asked my producer if I could just ad lib something and she was totally fine with it I normally don't even ask for that um, but I did because I didn't want her to advance to the next story, just the way the logistically the rundown was. So um, <clears throat> that was no big deal. I had a couple of really nice comments right away from people who were like, oh, thanks for, for mentioning that. My my daughter's making that soup for the first time this year. Um, and 
then like an hour later, a woman had left a voicemail and it finally got to me like later in, on in the evening, um, just because of our voicemail system. And so she, this woman called and said that she was very offended because um, if white people talked about what white people ate, they would get fired and that I was being very Asian and I needed to keep my Korean to myself. It was just very annoying. Talk about what white people eat. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> and so um, I basically put a video of me listening to that voicemail out on Twitter and Instagram and, um, you know, went to bed feeling actually really terrible about myself. But uh, the next morning it had gone viral, like actually viral. And um, that set off a bunch of different things. Michelle, in doing, I did some preparation for our conversation today. And I, I saw this piece that you did not long after you posted the tweet. And in this piece, you talk about some pretty hard things, including you talked about hating yourself at different points in your life and also about being threatened with violence. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? You know, it's interesting because we've all had racism in our lives, whether they're microaggressions or, you know, uh, actual things. But when I was a kid, especially, um, people, oh my gosh, full metal jacket came out during my like adolescent years. And that was so tough because I had kids throwing money at me saying like $5, sucky, sucky, love you long time. I mean, at school, you know, and I would, you know, respond with an F you, you know, cause I was so enraged and I'm the one who got sent to the principal's office because, um, I dropped the F bomb. And I remember I was like, doesn't it matter that they did this to me? You know, no, it doesn't because you're the one who broke the rule with cursing. So it's like people wouldn't even acknowledge the adults wouldn't even acknowledge how terrible and impactful racism like that is. And not just racism, but like an act, you know, like getting money thrown at you, um, like coins it actually hurts. Um, and then the fights that ensued because of that, you know, just constantly having, having to defend myself. Um, you know, one girl um, followed me home from school and tried to beat the crap out of me. Luckily, she did not. But, um, but it actually was like pretty traumatic. Um, and then, you know, there were all, like, I've been spin on in my professional setting. I've had lots of uh, phone calls where it's like, get that damn, I remember someone was like, get that damn jab off the air. And it was like, well, first of all, I'm not that. Second of all, what? Um, because this person, she was like, uh, how disrespectful for you to have a Japanese person at this Memorial Day ceremony. You know, and I was like, well, I'm an American citizen and I'm not Japanese. And, you know, I was always scared that I was going to lose my job. And it didn't help that at the time, um, when I would say these, you know, you would get these complaints on the opposite end behind the scenes, management would say things like, well, minorities only make up 3% of the population. So we really don't have a business plan for them. Um, that was said to me within the last 20 years, you know, and for, um, like, I remember one time in contract negotiations, renegotiations, I said, well, doesn't it matter that I'm the first Asian American anchor to be in this time slot, which is like a prime time spot. No, it actually doesn't matter because, um, uh, who was it? No, it, we actually don't care because the audience doesn't care. So if the audience doesn't care in, you know, in the middle of the country or in the Southeast or in the Northwest or whatever it is, um, if the audience isn't watching you and they don't support you, then we, we don't support you. 
So I was always afraid that when someone called to speak to a manager, that I would lose my job because eventually managers would see, well, you're not valued here. Um, and it was really terrifying. Not, not to mention the fact that Asian people um, in journalism have a hard time getting hired. So tell me the last time, even in Seattle, you saw two Asian people anchoring together. It's very rare, right? Um, at least maybe fill in, maybe if someone's filling in. But I used to be told in this industry that, well, we already have an Asian anchor and we just don't want to confuse the viewer. So that means one person, one Asian person was getting hired at stations at a time. There are 200 mark. Well, you know, there are 200 markets in the country, plus maybe one to three stations at each market. And only one Asian person at each um, each place of employment. So that was a reality for a lot of people. We knew to keep our mouth shut. You know, we knew that we had to fall in line and also assimilate in many ways um, and also accept racism and bigotry because uh, if we spoke up too much, we might lose our jobs and our livelihood. Thank you for sharing that, Michelle. I, I know it must be hard. Um, those are truly some awful things that happened to you. Um, but I, I appreciate how blunt and how honest you are about this. Um, I think we're at a time where we can't um, tiptoe around these conversations. We have to go straight in them, into them. And to your point, uh, in a former life, I worked as a TV news producer. And now that I think about it, after listening to you, I think, yeah, we, we only did have one Asian reporter at our station. There's this whole upward mobility, you know, like we we used to only cap out as the morning anchors because no one ever saw us as commanding enough to be a main anchor. So that's why I was always like, well, doesn't it matter that I'm a main anchor, you know, main evening anchor in this slot? No, it doesn't. Um, and I can say that bluntly because it just, ha I mean, it's happened in the past, you know, so it's not currently happening to me. Um, but I do think there are still hiring issues for Asian Americans in in this industry, we barely see um, Asian American men, you know, and then everything is also very heavily uh, to, you know, East Asian. So there are a lot, there's lots of room, lots of room for improvement. Yeah, I, I was wondering if I could um, just follow up on, on what Michelle was saying, because it, a couple of things strike me. First of all, a couple of weeks ago, I was in um, Federal Way at a store and I had a woman come up behind me and scream at me, uh, go back to your effing country, you B word. <laughs> so, I mean, it's still happening. Um, and I think right now, especially with the pandemic and with Asians being blamed for it, um, we're seeing heightened violence towards Asians. There was just an incident a couple of days ago that was really terrible. And so, yes, we've experienced a lot in the past, but it's still happening now. I think sometimes it's not that blunt. It's not that obvious. It's more covert, but it's still happening. And, um, you know, in social work and academia, um, Asians are also not highly represented either. And in fact, I, I had mentioned um, before we started recording that I'm um, doing some uh, faculty searches. So I see a lot of advertisements and we get a lot that say, you know, we're looking especially for um, applicants from historically marginalized or oppressed communities. And then it will list different groups of people and Asians are almost never included. 
So I had actually just tweeted yesterday that I wish that social work would, as a profession, would realize that Asians are also historically marginalized and oppressed in this country. Um, there have been lots of incidents, um, including in the Pacific Northwest, as kind of a hub for a lot of that, California, Oregon, and Washington. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to point out that I'm not trying to play the oppression Olympics, and I don't think that um, one oppression is greater than another group's, but just that we are also, you know, we're just never even included. And I think that that's the part that, um, you know, I'm glad, Michelle, that you're doing the work that you're doing to heighten the fact that we are often excluded from conversations around racism and um, discrimination. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that so much. And, you know, it even like, I remember being an adoptee, you know, as an adoptee looking at scholarships because I was still adopted into a very blue collar family. Um, I was the first generation college student in my family. And I remember having like, you know, now looking back, being in these two parallels where I was a minority, the only in all my friend groups, you know, school groups, and then still at the same time, also kind of a minority in terms of like, uh, the financial um, privilege, you know, because we just, my dad did not graduate high school, you know, so we were looking at, you know, he, every, every sense that he made as a construction worker went to my education. And so there was, this, you know, I remember struggling in, in college because I, because I basically was going through this alone. My parents are supporting me, but they really didn't know how to emotionally support me. But what I'm trying to get to is that like applying for scholarships was also very difficult because I could not find a scholarship um, in my categories. You know, I wasn't, um, there just weren't scholarships for me. You know what I mean? So that's another thing about being invisible on, on so many different levels and for, and for like our whole life, you know, that's kind of how it felt like. I do want to, uh, I think we, it's important to acknowledge that um, we are just a little over a year past the, the shooting in Atlanta that left eight people dead. And I believe six uh, of the victims were Asian women. So it feels important to bring up in the context of what the two of you are talking about um, and your lived experiences. I want to shift a little bit, Michelle, and stay with you for a moment. Um, can you talk about the uh, the very Asian foundation um, and sort of your, what what is your sort of maybe short-term and long-term goals for the foundation? Oh, sure. Thank you. It's, um, so after I went on Ellen, she gave us money and I could have, I mean, it was to me, I could have like pocketed it and had a really like maybe gotten some new windows or something, but we need new windows. But I actually was like, well, let's use the money for something good. So we formed the very Asian foundation and, you know, that was in mid-January, so we haven't been around very long, um, but we've decided that we really want to shine a light on all walks of Asian life, and we leave it as Asian life because we had so much global response um, with this movement. We had people who were reaching out to us from Holland and Germany and Australia and Canada and Korea and people who were buying these t-shirts that, that we created um, from the hashtag very Asian and um, gave money to the Asian American Journalists Association. But um, so we really think, you know, journalism is shining a light on things and all walks of Asian life symbolizes the diversity. 
Um, and then what that looks like, you know, is really for us to decide, I guess. Um, I think it's so important to acknowledge stories um, and acknowledge people as they exist in the world and also help them like be comfortable with that. You know, giving them acknowledgement and legitimizing their lives, I think is so, and their stories is so important. Um, because so many people reached out and said, we don't, we have never felt seen. I've never seen an adoptee speak out for the Asian American, um, you know, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander group. Um, we also had people who are mixed race who said, I never felt Asian enough to say, you know, stop API hate. Um, and we also had people and tons of people in solidarity. Um, and then also lots of folks in the LGBTQ community. So it just felt like this really inclusive moment. Um, and now it's like, well, how do we, how do we amplify all those voices? You know, what can we do? And so we're working on a couple of national projects that I'm really excited about, but um, they're not to fruition just yet. Um, but I think that that would be a good start. I, you know, I think ultimately it's raising money for organizations that are already doing great work and then coming up with our own programming to kind of fill in the gaps where we don't see a lot of resources. I wanted to take a break to mention that UW Tacoma has been designated an Asian American and Native Pacific Islander serving institution. This designation is important because it makes available federal grants that support Asian American and Native Pacific Islander students. We are in the process of applying for these grants, but we're already supporting the student population through the UW Tacoma Asian American and Pacific Islander Impact Endowment. This endowment provides support for Asian American and Native Pacific Islander students at UW Tacoma in a number of ways, including funding programming and activities. We'll include a link to the endowment in the episode description. If you'd like to learn more, or if you'd like to support students by making a gift. So the two of you have been talking about this idea of not really fitting in or belonging. Um, so I want to talk about imposter syndrome with the two of you. And Michelle, this comes from the last time you and I chatted, you were telling me about how you felt like an imposter a lot um, during your career. And I thought that was really interesting because you have won multiple Edward R. Murrow Awards, multiple Emmys. You are a, a respected journalist. Uh, and J. Ron, you have um, written a, a number of articles that have been published in peer-reviewed journals. You're writing books and you're speaking at conferences. So I wonder if we could talk about this idea of feeling like an imposter. And also, what would you say to young people who maybe feel the, the same way? And Jaron, how about you start this one off? Yeah, I think this is such an interesting question. And it's, I think, multifaceted, um, especially for Michelle and I, because there's kind of multiple levels where we may feel like imposters. Um, we already talked about kind of the erasure of Asian women, especially in our fields. Um, I mean, there's, if we talk about intersectionality, we're women, we're Asian women, and then we're also adoptees, meaning that, you know, we were adopted from another country into this, into the United States, and we don't see a lot of representation of people like us. You know, I was really struck, Michelle, when you said that you had people come up and say, we've never seen um, an Asian adoptee journalist speaking out. Isn't that crazy? You would yeah. think in 2022, you would, but yeah. I, right, right. Yeah. 
there are all these milestones that are happening over just the past few years where we're seeing this happen. Um, I, I, I know you're going to ask us about education um, as well, Eric, but for me, um, my first year here, I had a, a Korean student come up to me in class and after class and say, she was very emotional. She got teary and she said, I've never had an Asian professor before. This is really meaningful to me. And like, what do you do with that? Just to know that, you know, uh, we have somebody who's in their college education and they're just really touched that they finally have somebody that looks like them who's um, who's a professor. Um, I was really lucky when I went back to school to get my social work degree. I had two Asian professors. I had one who was Hmong. He was the first Hmong college professor in Minnesota. Um, and I had a fantastic sociology professor who is Chinese American. And, um, but I, so I understood how my student felt because that's how I felt when I saw Asian, um, professors for my classes. So if we don't see more people that look like us that do the work that we do, it's really easy to feel like you're an imposter because to me, it's really about representation and making sure that there's pathways for more of us to get into the field and doing what we're doing. And, you know, my advice for younger folks is to seek out those mentors, to seek out other people who are doing that work. Um, who are who have the same interests as you and um i i mean i've always been um very happy to talk to asian students and asian adoptee students um they reach out to me all the time uh, i'm working on a project i'm working on a paper um i get students from all around the united states who find my work and then contact me and say you know could i meet with you and I think that just speaks to the lack of uh, opportunities that they have to talk to other people about the topics they're interested in, and especially for Asian adoptees. Um, you know, there's just not a whole lot of us doing this work. Oh my gosh, you have the perfect answer. <laughs> you know, to, to go along with that, I would say I have felt not only an imposter, um, well, I'll tell you, in a journalism space, of you know, have felt an imposter for all the reasons um, that have just been mentioned. But on top of this idea, I think when you move through markets, you know, when you're working in, say, Wilmington, North Carolina, or Springfield, Missouri, sometimes you think like, I just need to get to St. Louis, or I just need to get to Portland or Seattle. And until then, then I'll be a real journalist, you know, um, or get the respect that I that I want. So there's always that imposter, like I'm not doing enough, or I don't have enough awards, or I don't have enough titles or experiences. Um, so, and then as a woman, of course, that makes it difficult. And then as an adoptee and as an, as an Asian woman, that makes it difficult. And then there's this, um, there is still a part of me, even though I think representation, just the packaging matters, you know, like just like I walk out the door and someone sees an Asian face and they go, oh gosh, thank you for representing, you know, um, there's still a part of me that's like, but am I really Asian enough? I battle that all the time. Um, because I think like, well, don't ask me to speak Korean because my Korean's rough, you know, or don't talk about tiger moms around me because I don't have one, you know, and those are all things, um, that a lot of times I'm excluded in those conversations and, and not necessarily excluded. I mean, people think that they're like including me in these conversations, but I'm excluded in those experiences. And so then that always makes me feel like, well, I'm not a real Asian, like I'm not a real Asian person. Granted, if I had been in Atlanta at the wrong time, you know, I would 
definitely be considered an Asian and may, may not be here. You know what I mean? You walk out the door and people are getting like the Yonkers incident, getting like targeted and attacked, you know? So this is something that we all share as Asian people who present as an Asian person um, that we have been really targets of racism, discrimination, hate, bigotry, and violence, um, especially in the last two years, but really for the beginning of time, you know? Um, but yeah, I definitely fight with imposter syndrome all the time on many different, it's multifaceted, uh, in many different levels, but I'm always like, am I, am I American enough? Am I Asian enough? I feel like whenever I meet someone from Missouri and I go out to a farm, I always have to explain to those farmers, Hey, I grew up around here. So I know what this, I know what you're doing. We had a hobby farm. I always have to explain that to people because I feel like they're not going to see that I'm American enough, you know? So it's, a, it's I feel like I'm always living in this with this imposter syndrome. You just explained it so perfectly um, (laughs) because it's so true um, for those of us who are Asian adoptees. Most of us aren't raised with any knowledge or uh, opportunities to interact with our communities of origin. So for us being Korean, you know, I grew up in Minnesota. I didn't realize that there were Korean restaurants or Korean churches or even Korean people that there until I was in my 20s and went to college. So that just shows you how so many of us are isolated and and we just don't even know. I I didn't know that there were Korean adoptees that were living all over the world in Scandinavia, in Australia, (laughs) in in Europe, until I went to a conference when I was almost 30 years old. I mean, that's a a long time before you really realize the scope of your community and and, um, so, and then you're I, intentionally bringing it into your life, you know, like that is such, that's such labor, you know, and, um, and sometimes it's a lonely journey, depending on if you have the support of your family, like my parents were always really supportive, but they weren't doing the work, you know, like they, my mom might take me somewhere as a kid, but like my dad wasn't like looking at literature and being like, maybe you should go to this camp, you know, so, and some of those, do all that. many of those things didn't even exist for me because I was adopted in the early seventies. And so all the Korean culture camps and those sorts of things didn't even, many of them didn't exist then either. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, we, it's so interesting because I always wanted to live like in Minnesota and Minneapolis because there were so many, because I always heard that, you know, that that's where the most Korean adoptees like kind of ended up being. And I was like, why couldn't I be in Minneapolis or whatever? That's true. That's true. I want to stick with uh, the the career topic for a minute. Uh, I am I am I am fascinated by how people end up doing what they're what they do. Um, it's usually like a very interesting story that takes turns uh, and sort of goes in different places and then ends up something more completely different. So I want I'm wondering if each of you can talk about what why you ended up doing what you're doing. Um, and Michelle, maybe start start this one off. You know, it's interesting. I um, knew that I'd be in communications, but I never knew that I'd be in journalism. And maybe it's because I still had that imposter syndrome, even as a kid, because I thought that journalists had to be really smart, um, you know, really connected, all these things polished, you know, and um, I didn't think I had that in me at all. And I, I mean, if you look at my tape, I didn't at 22, you know, so that's a thing, but I didn't have the confidence to really do it. And I Anyway, I took one class and fell in love 
with journalism in my junior year. And so then I was like, well, you know, a lot of people don't use their degrees. So I'm just going to keep going. And that's really what happened to me is I just kept going, even in the face of lots of self-doubt and, um, you know, self-worth issues. I just said, well, you're just going to keep going. And, um, and that's what happened. I love the work. I love being able to do the work when I think the work is meaningful. I think there's an industry, you know, how it is in the industry, there's a lot of work that also maybe isn't as meaningful that you just have to do because we have a deadline every day. But when it's meaningful, it's, it's, it can keep me on a high for a really long time. Um, but it's hard work. It doesn't pay well. <laughs> you know, you might get, um, to be, you know, you might be a target of things. Um, but really, I just love meeting people and hearing their stories. And, um, and then I love this idea that you can be a part of change in some way, you know, actionable change. And the thing that I hate about it is that it's gotten so political in the last few years that it's really hard for you to come out and say, no, 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 this is turning a wrong into a right, you know, some people will try to be like, well, you're just saying that because you're a woman, you know, and it's like, no, this is actually a very data, you know, scientific approach to things, you know, as we've seen it. But anyway, um, but I do believe in actionable change and, um, and the change that comes from journalism. So I'm a very late bloomer to my profession and my career. I spent most of my 20s um, wandering around trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. So uh, I ended up doing some volunteer work for a local adoption agency, providing some mentoring to uh, young moms who are at risk of being involved in child protection. And it was through that mentoring program that the director of volunteer services uh, kind of identified that I might be good at this and maybe should explore it as a career and said, hey, have you ever thought about going into social work? And I always joke that I told her, I don't even know what social work is. What is it? <laughs> I knew what psychology was, but I didn't know what social work was. Um, and because I had dropped out of college and hadn't finished at that point, I had tried. I'd been, I think, at three different colleges and dropped out of all of them. I decided to go back and explore social work and did my undergraduate at a place that was very similar to UW-Tacoma. And this is part of the reason why I'm at UW-Tacoma now is because the college that I went to was, um, it was a commuter campus. Um, most of the students were transfer students. They were trying to figure out, you know, how to get a, a degree of some sort, whatever it was, um, but often had families or were working full time. Um, and it was just the place where I finally, like where college just took, where I figured it out, where I had really supportive small classrooms with faculty that were just very present. And it helped me get my degree. And um, I did a child welfare track when I was there, kind of continuing on my interest in child welfare, partly because of my own interest, right? As somebody who had grown up in orphanages before I was adopted, I was very interested in what happens to kids when they're not living with their families of origin and why. And so I just pursued that. And um, I, working in the child welfare field after I did my social work degree, um, I started having questions about how are we practicing child welfare in the United States? I, 
I had some concerns and some questions and I started looking at all the research and I just felt like the voices of the individuals who are most impacted. So Michelle, this is making me think of some of the things that you were just saying. I was working with foster youth and they were telling me things that didn't align with what the research was saying. And I decided to do a PhD because I wanted to see if I could um, ask different questions in the research process than what had been asked before. And I think part of that is because there weren't a lot of people like me who had an experience of being in child welfare care as, you know, in orphanages or in foster care who were, who had made it to that level to be researchers to ask the questions. Um, so I also feel like my jobs, uh, I had a friend who once told me that doing research is bearing witness to people's lives. And so it's through hearing their stories and learning from their experiences that we can do better um, in terms of how our social services can help address some pretty big problems that still exist in this country. The two of you are, are both adopted. So I'm wondering if we could take a few minutes to talk about your individual experiences and also maybe specifically around the idea of trying to create an identity. So I kind of alluded to the fact that I grew up in Minnesota, but in um, a predominantly white communities and didn't really have an opportunity to even interact with other Asians at all until I went to college, my first try going to college. And there was actually mostly it was an international student population. And, um, you know, honestly, it was really difficult for me because some of those things that Michelle and I were talking about earlier um, really came to the forefront. The other students didn't understand why I didn't speak a different language. They didn't understand why I didn't under, you know, know the culture. Um, so it was really difficult. It felt um, scary to try and reach out and become friends with other Asian, uh, Asian on campus. Um, it, it wasn't until I was almost 30 that I started thinking about, oh, and it was prompted by having kids. So I have two kids who are now 28 and 23. And it was when I had them that um, I really was like, how am I going to teach my kids what it means to be an Asian person in the United States if I don't really know what it means myself? So um, I spent probably the later half of my 20s really trying to learn more. I read everything that I could get my hands on from the library. Um, and then once I went back to school and um, did my undergraduate degree, I took every class that I could on ethnic studies and anthropology. I was just trying to learn anything that I could about the experience of being an Asian person in the United States. And then when I was um, almost 30, I connected with some other Korean adoptees. And that's, I think, where it really, um, everything blossomed and where I was able to share experiences and say, oh, you had that, ex you had that experience too, or you felt that way as well. Um, so for me, I think the identity piece really happened when, I mean, I had to do kind of some prep work, but it really happened in community with other Korean adoptees. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really interesting. So I feel like my um, my experience is a little different because um, when I was a kid, I started going to Korean heritage camps. There was one in Tulsa. And at the time it was Dillon International, even though I was a Holt International kid. 
Um, but it was close to us and it was close to my grandparents' house. So every summer I would spend, you know, a week in Tulsa meeting other adoptees. I was, it happened so late that I was actually one of the oldest kids. So I was 14 when I went and most kids were like, you know, five, six. So they made me a junior counselor. So that was kind of like the way, you know, I wasn't really hanging out with kids my age, but I was with all these adoptees. But there were a handful of us that were in our teens. And one of my friends went to Korea after his high school graduation. And so that inspired me to want to go to Korea the following year when I, when I graduated. And um, my mom packed um, a photo album because she was like, just in case you meet your Korean family. And I was like, well, why would I meet my Korean family? You know, but, um, but then she also gave me a letter that she had kept for, um, well, 18 years that she had done, well, not 18, probably 13 years because she did this when I was like five. She sent a letter to Holt asking about my birth family and they were able to tell her like in 1985 that I had, um, that my birth family um, consisted of my Korean mother, my Korean father and two sisters. And so I, I still can't believe my mom didn't tell me um, all those years, but she told me, she said, I tried to tell you kind of makes me get emotional. Cause she was like, I tried to tell you and I just couldn't do it. So she told me like, right before it, like literally like we're packing for Korea. And so I was like, okay, well I get to Korea and um, we have a day where we can go to like the whole office. And so there you look at your file and all this stuff. And so I said, can I find my birth? Oh, that was another thing my mom did. She'd sent pictures to Holt and then they, you know, you sent it to like Kansas city or whatever. And then they send it to Korea and they put in your files. I show up in Korea, open my file. My mom sent all these pictures of me um, in case my birth mother came back and wanted to see the file. So I was already an emotional mess. Um, and the, the woman at the social worker said, well, you can't meet your birth family. That's not how the search works. You have to do the search in the United States and then um, you'll come back if we find them. And I was like, what? I'm here. I didn't understand. My 18 year old brain didn't understand that. I was like, that's crazy talk. I am here right now. You know, so um, anyway, um, long story short is that she made a phone call and connected me to my birth family. And then I actually found out that not only did I have two sisters, then I had a younger sister. So really, um, that was when I was 18 and now I'm in my forties. So now I've known my Korean family longer than I have not known them. And, um, and they're a part of my life, like we've merged families. So the adoption component for me has really been interesting because it was such a life changing reunion at such an early age while my sisters and I were kind of in our formative years. So, um, so we have a very interesting relationship and blended family sort of. Um, my, one of my sisters now lives in the United States. She actually lived with me in Seattle for a while, met her husband in Seattle, who's, who grew up in Minnesota, who grew up in Edina. Um, and now they live in Dallas. They just left uh, Seattle. They just got out of Dodge like we all did, <laughs> like both of us did, and um, are now there. So um, adoption has been like a real interesting journey for me. And I think I was thrust into a lot of stuff that I wasn't really prepared to handle. Um, and in some ways um, has taken me out of, even though I've still done a lot of adoption work, but just in a different way. Um, 
like I would go back to Korea many times and like bring babies back. Um, you know, I was a part of that kind of work. Um, but like the self-discovery was really different for me. Um, and in some ways helpful and in some ways isolating because I still don't really share that experience with a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people have done reunions, but like I, they don't live with their birth family in the United States. Um, and, uh, at the same time, meeting your birth family opens up so many new issues, um, because Korean people have their culture. <laughs> so it's like, um, you know, there's still a lot of things that I don't know about my birth that you would think I would know. I still don't know where I was born. I still don't know, like on what circumstances, um, that I was really relinquished, um, I don't know my health records. So it's like, you know, you think that you would have all this access to information and you really don't either. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, so my adoption story is a little bit different, but um, I will say meeting Korean like kids my age in my 20s was really eye opening for me because I was taking Korean classes, trying to like uh, be friends with Korean kids. I mean, Korean American kids, um, but they were really rough on me. So they kind of shunned me. Like they were like, you're too whitewashed and you're not diverse enough. And, you know, like they made me feel really bad. So it's just like one group of kids, you know, in one area. But it it changed me. And that also changed me to be like, you know what? I can't be everything to everybody. I can just be Michelle, you know? And so I'm an adoptee. You know, sometimes I fit in a Korean space. Sometimes I don't. Um, so it was just, it's really hard, I think, sometimes to be an adoptee because you do kind of live in two different worlds sometimes. Michelle, you were saying something about, you know, meeting your family, your uh, that part of your family for the first time at, a, at an older, like kind of an older age. And, um, you know, I'm not adopted, but I have a, I have a, an interesting family to say at least and you know basically when I was a teenager I learned that I have a I had a sister like, oh um well that's interesting uh and then sitting on that knowledge for quite a few years because she was just a baby at the time um and you know when I I, I waited till I was basically in my mid-30s so I, I knew this for a long time but she was just too young and I didn't know I, I didn't want to upend her her life at that point it's like it's gonna be weird for her um, yeah. And ultimately it did not go as well as I think it sounds like with your, uh, we tried, but to, to be brother and sister, but it was it just wasn't, just wasn't there. So that's interesting. You know, I can, part of what you're saying really resonates to me with me. Cause I, it was very odd to find out that you had a family, you had no idea existed. Oh, sure. And you know, and when I say, you know, I'm close with my sister, but we are very different women, you know, like we have, I think a lot of things in common, but we were raised so differently. And so I, you know, I can see those differences. And then, you know, we have two sisters in Korea. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, well, what's that about, <laughs> you know, or, or why aren't our parents telling us this? Um, you know, I don't even, I've, I asked, it's, it's funny, like with Korean people, I say, you know, if, if there's anything that they want to get me, because it's always like, what can we get you, you know, or in the past, it was like, well, I would just like a family tree. I would like information about our family so that I can keep that and share that. And my sister was like, that's not how they work. They want to just buy you something. What do you need? <laughs> you know, because Korean people, not all Korean people, but my Korean people are, um, 
I don't think they want to go that far back, you know, and they don't want to keep, they really don't enjoy sharing, you know, certain things. I think in their older years, they've been more um, up, up for it. But like, we, like I even asked my sister, I'm like, do you know anything about our grandparents? And she said, no, you know, and she would know, you know, she's directly connected to them all the time. So it's, um, and, and sibling relationships are hard. Um, adoption's hard. Um, and there have been times when I have not to their knowledge, but have made the boundary for myself to be like, well, I'm not dealing with that. So, you know, um, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Like when you're trying to, just because you're related by blood doesn't mean you're going to have that much in common. I think that when we're talking about adoption, the kind of the larger social narrative is that adoption's this win-win-win for everybody. And the reality is that adoptions don't happen unless there's some kind of a trauma that happens in a family. And we need to help people understand that. And so that's a lot of the work that I try and do is to shed light on the fact that Adoption may be the best situation for a particular child and a particular family, but that's usually because there are many other options that are not so good. And and that adoption isn't always going to be the perfect answer or perfect solution. It is just one of the solutions that might be uh, available. It's complicated, right? Families are complicated. Families are messy. Even if adoption's not involved, um, but there's just those extra layers. And then when you're adopting across race, when you're adopting across country, nation, um, it just adds on more, more layers to the onion, more complications, um, more opportunities for there to be misunderstanding and miscommunication. So I think, you know, for me personally, Working with uh, adoption agencies, working with adoptive parents has been a large part of what I've done in the past, as well as working with adoptees, just because I think that we've tried to just make it the simple solution to a problem or to several problems. It's not always the right solution. And I think about my parents, you know, they now say, you know, our social worker told us raise, raise me. Um, even though I'm Korean and was adopted, <laughs> raised me as if I was just one of their birth children. I have two siblings who were born to my parents. Um, well, I mean, in the one sense, I always say like that, and they would always say, well, I don't see you as Korean. I just see you as a daughter. I get the sentiment behind that. It's lovely. They don't love me any less than their other kids, but I'm not white and I'm not biologically related to them. and the erasure of those differences or the acknowledgement of those differences. I, it's not the discriminate treatment. It's just the acknowledgement that we're different um, meant that it was really hard for me to feel like it was okay for me to explore being Korean. Not because they said, don't explore. They would never have said that to me ever. Um, they just didn't know. They didn't know. And so the silence around it just made me internalize that I didn't have permission to do that. I want parents who are adopting across race, who are adopting internationally, to have a really solid sense of, you know, it, it's it's harmful to a child's development if they don't know who they are. And that's all parts of who they are, including their race, their country of origin. And sometimes that means learning really hard information about what happened and why you're no longer living with your family of origin in that country that you were born into. 
we just need to be more honest and communicate better about that for our, for our, for healthy development for kids. That's beautiful. Also, you know, did your parents use the words assimilate? Because, you know, that's kind of a buzzword now, you know, assimilation and all these things. But, um, but that was a term that my mom was telling me in the eighties, like, well, our adoption agency told to assimilate you, you know? And it was like, and, but I like what you said, because it really is true. It, when you do that, it doesn't, you feel like, and I've never said this, you know, until you said it, like the, this idea that you really don't have, feel like you have permission to explore your Korean identity, you know, because it's like, well, you're one of us. Why would you want to do that? Um, I mean, I, I have definitely felt that. And, um, even if it's, un- even if it was never said, you can still sort of feel that, you know, so that was beautifully said. Jayron, you've already touched on this a little bit, but Michelle, I wonder if you could talk about um, your work in the field of adoption. Well, it's interesting. Um, I don't, I'm like, what am I doing around adoption? Um, I would say that right now I'm doing less because I'm, I have a toddler, so I'm not really doing much, but I'm, I have always been in support of the people I know at adoption agencies. Now I know that some of that work and some adoption agencies in general can have, it can be controversial, right? Um, so I want to be very clear about, you know, I realize that, um, but I have connections with people who I really admire their selflessness and what the, and their intentions. And I mean, I, I think that that has been how I have kind of grown up utilizing services, you know, building kind of like my own family with um, these people I know. Um, so that's all I can really speak on, you know, but I would say in the past, you know, I went to Korea several times um, with the adoption agency that I went with, um, which was not my own adoption agency, but a part of that component used to be bringing babies back to their families. Now, now it's recommended that the families go to the country, you know, so that they are immersed in culture and understand, have a respect for it, you know, but back in the day, in the early 2000s, I would bring children back to the United States. Um, And then also just work with adoptees and adoptive families. And sometimes it was like nothing. Like I had a group of girls who are now in their 20s. Um, But like when they were like 10 or 11 or, you know, they would come to the house, we'd make brownies, we'd watch movies, you know, as they got older, we would go shopping, you know, we wouldn't really talk about adoption, but I just bring up, you know, like, hey, how's it going? What's happening at school? You know, um, things like that. Um, And then still do like, um, like I'll be, I'll, I'll write for a blog, you know, for like the whole international blog or con or something, you know, um, I'm going to the, the con convention in June. Oh, you're going to go to, yeah. So I'm excited about that. Um, So, and, and I'm just active in like certain spaces, but you know, it's hard for me because I respect everyone's opinions and realize that everyone has different um, experiences. But I am desperate almost to find someone with my experience, you know, now at this point in my life. I do think that it would be really great for us to kind of come up with material that and curating content for our community in a more mainstream way. You know, like I'm trying to buy books for my toddler and there's just no books that for him. He's mixed race. His mom's adopted. You know, like there's just like all these things that it's like um, that's how I feel like I can use my um, use this moment and use the collective power of people to kind of 
push the conversations forward when it comes to adoption and the live and the real lives that we live. I want to come back to this idea of being very Asian. I think this is a, a good way to end our conversation is kind of where we started. Um, so I'm wondering for each of you as individuals, what does it mean to you to be, you know, very Asian or maybe even if you very Korean or, or uh, very Korean American, however you want to take this? Well, to me, I think at this point in my life, it's like being very Asian to me is being very unapologetic for who I am. You know, I have tried so many years and this is when, you know, you know I said it like I hated myself, right? Like this is um, or made myself small because I tried for many years um, and sometimes not intentionally, but to try to fit into other people's boxes and how they see me. Right. And so I'm just like, you know what? I'm midlife. I'm raising a son who I want to be confident and have self-worth and be strong. So I need to set an example of like, you know what? We are who we are. And if it's not good enough for this person or not good enough for this group, that's, that's tough because this is who we are and we're going to be unapologetic about it. Um, and that means I can be very Asian, um, but that means I can be my own kind of variation of variation um, and still be um, who I am. I don't know that I could answer it any better. I think the way you um, just articulated it, Michelle, is, is perfect. And for me, it's very similar. Um, I think it's taken me, I, I'm in my 50s, and it's taken me a long time um, to be able to just feel like I can claim my Asian-ness um, without any kind of apology around it. Part of, um, so I legally changed my name to incorporate my Korean name when I was 35. And I did it intentionally because um, I was tired of that look of surprise when you talk to somebody, make an appointment on the phone, and then you go in and they look and they don't expect it to be you. The surprise when somebody walks in and they're not what you expect. And so for me, um, incorporating my Korean name was part of my attempt to be able to, to be more holistic. Um, now, adoptive parents are often encouraged to keep parts of their adopted child's um, birth name if they have one. Um, but again, back in the 1970s, adoptive parents didn't usually think about that and they weren't advised to do that. We were supposed to become as American as possible. And so American meant you couldn't have any kind of ethnicity attached to you. You know, you had to give that up. Um, so part of it for me was helping other people like know that an Asian person was going to be walking through the door. <laughs> Um, and also to just kind of uh, have a more holistic um, identity and, uh, and and claiming who I was, all, all parts of who I was. So you were reclaiming all parts of who you were before it was even cool, because a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people are reclaiming their their names right now. And I think it's so awesome. And um, and I told I kind of took a, a half step to that because my. Korean name is actually um, Park. It's Kinsuk Park. And um, we decided that when I I was told in the industry, like if you're going to be an Asian person, like, yeah, I am going to be an Asian person, then you need to, like, news directors need to invest in an Asian person. They want the most bang for their buck. So Michelle Sherwood just doesn't make sense to us. Um, so when I was like 30, 
maybe 30, 31. I changed my name, not legally, but just the pen name to Michelle Lee um, because my Korean mother's name is Lee. Mm -hmm. And I took, you know, how most Koreans, when they, I guess, Romanize it, they take it, you know, L-E-E. But I chose L-I because back then we used to have to send cold, you know, like just like um, just packages, like cold call people, basically. So we'd send a package with a DVD and our name and our label. And so my label L-I would signify, be very clear that I'm Asian, you know. And so that was the strategy. But I also find it kind of like a bunch of BS that a bunch of white people told me I had to be L-I, you know, um, in order to get a job and get paid. The music you're hearing is by UW Tacoma Associate Teaching Professor Nicole Blair. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. You will find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Pocket Cast.